Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We really appreciate you tuning in. In this episode, we're sharing the audio of an interview that Aaron and I did with Vince Bantu in San Antonio, and it was a live event, a lot of fun to gather together. And we want to thank, again, IVP Academic for hosting this event, and to Rebecca Cherhun for helping organize it, and to Ed Hackey for his audio production work. We hope you enjoy this interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a live recording of the OnScript podcast. We're here at the Little Ryan Prost House in San Antonio, enjoying a good time together. And I'm joined by OnScript co-host, Dr. Aaron Heim. Hey, Aaron. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today, Dr. Vince Bantu. Welcome. Hello, hello. Uh, I want to start by thanking our sponsor today, uh, Rolls-Royce Motor Cars, um, <laughs> Inspiring Greatness. And uh, if you uh, use the OnScript, the the code OnScript, you get five percent off your next Rolls Royce if you uh, order that online within the next twenty four hours. So please do make use of that. No, but for real, I want to thank um, IVP Academic. So let's give them a hand for sponsoring this. So uh, and Vince's book is published by IVP Academic, so it's a it's a fitting occasion to celebrate what you've done, Vince. So, um, our guest, Dr. Vince Bantu, is assistant professor of church history and Black Church Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the author of Gospel Hymenote, uh, Constructive Theology, and Critical Reflection on African and Diasporic Christianity. And the book we're discussing today, A Multitude of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. Vince is the founder and director of the Meacham School of Hymenote, and Hymenote is Ge'ez, or Ethiopic, for faith or theology, and which exists to bring biblical grad-level theological education to African-American, ethnic minority, and low-income communities in a contextualized and affordable manner. Have I characterized that properly? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I would say, um, you know, we started about three years ago, and it's named uh, after John and Mary Meacham, who were actually the founders of First African Church in St. Louis, my hometown, in 1817, the first black church west of Mississippi. And they were also also actually arrested for uh, helping slaves escape uh, into Illinois on the Underground Railroad. And they actually started a seminary in the church uh, that the the state of Missouri shut down because it was illegal for blacks to learn how to read. So they actually took it out onto the river and were teaching slaves to read so they could learn theology, um, you know, out on the river outside of their jurisdiction. So we we named it after them, just kind of after the the legacy of the black church of being a resource for theological education in the black community uh, at times when uh, African Americans have been excluded and shut out from uh, theological education uh, from predominantly white institutions. So we're kind of carrying on that that legacy of providing again accessible, contextual, and also uh, biblical uh, theological education, um, but also in an Afrocentric. Uh, framework. 
Fantastic. Sounds like some great work. So, Vince, tell us a bit about your background and your work as a pastor and how that's fed into what you're doing now. Yeah, so I, you know, I mentioned I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, born and raised. And, um, uh, you know, St. Louis, I grew up in the inner city on the west side. Uh, and it's a, you know, St. Louis is a very racially segregated, uh, starkly segregated city. And, uh, you know, one that's been really wrought with a lot of uh, oppression. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I, I came to know the Lord uh, at a very young age and felt a call to be a pastor. And uh, my wife and I also uh, lead a small community church in St. Louis called Beloved Community Church. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've always had a heart, again, for urban ministry um, and really just preaching the gospel in, um, uh, you know, under-resourced communities. And one of the things that really uh, just grabbed my heart at a young age was the way in which uh, I saw even my peers uh, growing up in the hood feeling excluded from the church and from Christianity uh, because of the way that it was packaged and presented as something that was culturally and racially other than than us. Um, and I even felt that my own self. And so um, that's something that I really just have a strong passion for evangelistically and apologetically in my ministry. Um, and, and you know, this, you know, one thing in, in our community and many communities around the world, uh, there's this perception that people have of Christianity as being this white man's religion. And that's that's, you know, not true, but it's communicated uh, in a million different ways, whether it's pictures of Jesus or, you know, who are the people that are running seminaries and denominations or who are the books that are being assigned to being read um, and whose cultural frameworks are used in theological discourse. And so um, so it's an understandable perception that people have. And so uh, I just really you know, again, have a heart for really preaching the gospel and helping people in my community and other communities that have been marginalized, understanding that that Christianity is for them as well, and that that we are all made in God's image, uh, and that we can come to God as we are, uh, and that there's no need for cultural assimilation into somebody else's expression of what it means to be Christian. And um, and so when I um, when I was in seminary, I took a class. Um, you know, where I actually ended up going to Egypt and it was called uh, Early African Christianity and I was blown away and my life was changed and I, I, I got, I just felt this call from the Lord, like a second call, uh, you know, to go into academics and to, you know, I was, I was just going to get my MDiv and, and just do ministry in which I do, but it was that experience that really made me feel called to, you know, also do the PhD and do the academic route as well. But but with the specific call again of of really trying to explore African rooted Christianity and contextual Christianity and to teach that in my community in a contextualized way. Um, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So the follow-up question is, how does this book fit into your journey as a scholar? Which seems like a really obvious answer probably at this point. But I think it, it, we'd all still really like to hear you talk just about how, like, where, how did we get here? Because this is an amazing book. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, glory to God. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say... Um, I would say just to add on to what I was sharing is that, you know, as I was like when I was in seminary, even when I was in college and I went to college in order to study theology, you know, nobody in my family had ever been to college, but I, I wasn't even going to go. But the only reason I went is because I felt called to be a pastor. And I was like, well, I'm going to go study theology and study the Bible. I didn't know what theology was. I just I studied the Bible. Um, and, and I went and, you know, uh, I, I loved it. I had a great time, but I also struggled with not seeing myself reflected uh, in the curriculum and the professors and the teaching and the methodology. 
technology. It, it really was a big culture shock. And and again, and, and so I was, again, sensitive to this issue. And so I, I would read books on like contextualization or on missiology or urban ministry or, you know, racial reconciliation, decolonizing theology, all these kind of things about how to, again, own the gospel story according to our our ancestry and you know pretty much all the books that i was reading again were from those disciplines and and a lot of them were and understandably so i mean they were very instructive for me and i even quote a lot of them um but a lot of them were focusing on kind of the post-colonial experience uh you know people of color encountering a colonial or colonizing kind of christianity and I think what, what hit me when I went on that trip was to realize, uh, I'm trying to invent this word now, I use it in class, and just, you know, it's not a word, but, you know, because we're talking about decolonial and post-colonial, but, you know, I, I, I love learning about our colonial uh, Christianity, like, you know, Christian, Christian history that was never, didn't know colonialism at all, and actually even developed theology and liturgy and ecclesiastical structures before there even was a, a such thing as colonial Christianity. Uh, and that was just really, that, that seemed like something that wasn't in the discussion again because most conversations that I see about decolonization or decentering they're usually taking place in the modern context and it's always kind of in response to what has been done in the colonial project which in and of itself in a way kind of still centers it uh, if we're always kind of speaking you know towards a colonial center and so I just want to try to decenter that by highlighting again context that just existed completely free and in many ways uh, in some ways independent of that. So, so let's go back to the early church then for a moment. You write in your book that the Chalcedonian schism represents the most significant ecclesiastical divide with regard to the perception of Christianity as a white man's religion. So for those who don't know what the Chalcedonian schism was, could you just give a brief on that and then tell us what you mean by that contributing more than anything to this perception of Christianity? Yeah, so so you know the the Council of Chalcedon is like one of those church councils that we don't talk about as much, maybe as like compared to the Nicene Council in 325, but especially with regards to like missiological or you know again issues of identity politics or cultural identity, you know it is, but uh, the most important I would say um, to those purposes. Uh, but you know yeah, just real quick um, in the fourth century, the big question that a lot of people in you know and again this is one of the other ways I try to decenter is always you know I I put hyphens in front of everything. I I think we need to just put hyphens in front of everything or nothing, but it's impossible to put them in front of nothing, so just put them in front of everything. And so I don't like it in church history when people say, well, in the early church or the first church council, I always say the first Roman church council, because the Persian church had its own councils and the Armenian church had its own councils and the Indian church was already up and running in the third century and it was independent. So I always say the, the first Roman in the, or in the, you know, you read books and they say, well, in the early church or in the fourth century, uh, Christians were dealing with the divinity of Christ. Well, Roman Christians were dealing with the divinity of Christ, but Persian Christians were clear on that issue. Um, but in the in the fourth century, um, the Roman Church was dealing with uh, the the question of whether or not Jesus was God. And then in the fifth century, the Roman Church was dealing with, and actually this one did apply to the Persian Church as well, was dealing with how is Jesus both God and human. And there was these different views. The Persian Church had its own kind of theology that was developing. And uh, then you know within the Roman Empire, there was kind of a big divide uh, between the you know for the most part the eastern and western provinces. And there was um, you know basically two main views within the Roman Empire uh, and the Council of Cal. 
Chalcedon adopted the view that said Jesus is one person, but he's two natures, right? So he's one hypostasis, but two physis. And, you know, initially the church of Egypt rejected that vehemently. And then later the churches of Syria and Arabia and even Armenia followed suit and rejected that. And then as it, Christianity spread in Nubia and Ethiopia also rejected that particular articulation of the faith. But if you're following the geography, um, you know, there, there's, there's a kind of a major geographical implication there where you have these two major centers in Constantinople and Rome that are advancing this one view and and then also actually you know after that starting to literally oppress and try to impose that view in places like North Africa and the Near East um, and then again in the Persian church which eventually spread all throughout Asia had a completely different uh, Christology um, and so that's that's why I made that comment because that uh, up until that point you know Christianity was spreading in every direction and it there was there really was no center um, but you know after that point that's when kind of the the church that developed in the, the part of the world that we now call Europe kind of you know, had their own doctrine and started to herald it as the only way of talking about something that honestly human words can't capture anyway. Um, and then to try to, again, either impose that on what the dominant faith of Africa or Asia uh, or just reject their theology as, as heretical. So, so the uh, two-nature theology is identified with Rome and is leveraged to oppress different parts of the early Christian world. Is that kind of the idea? Oh, definitely, yeah. So, because right after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, then you had almost 200 years of, of you know, Roman imperial oppression. Because, again, like Egypt and Syria and Arabia, these were all still Roman provinces, and they were still, you know, important to the empire. And so, you know, Roman emperors had to try to force a theological hegemony and, and kind of, you know, uniformity throughout the empire. So they were going in and kidnapping their patriarchs, their their bishops, their, their monastic leaders, killing them, uh, coming in with the the tome of Leo, who's the bishop of Rome, that kind of articulated the one person, two natures thing, and said, "You guys got to agree to this, or we're going to kill you." I mean, it was you know the the literature that comes out of Egypt and Syria in this time period is really reminiscent of the early Roman martyr uh, martyr stories in the second and third century. Only in that time, it was pagans telling Christians to renounce Jesus or die. Now it was Christians telling Christians, "Say Jesus has two natures or die," uh, and that you know went on for you know about two centuries until the rise of Islam, and then, you know, th those parts of the Roman Empire were now under, became under Islamic, you know, dominance, um, and then, um, you know, yeah. yeah. I think we'll get more to that later, so yeah. I don't, I'll, just, I'll just leave it there for that. I, I get the sense that you, you, can, you can run with this stuff. <laughs> so to, a to ask a follow-up question, I, I think it's really shrewd that you call what's going on in the early uh, Roman church, Egyptian church, et cetera, you call it identity politics in your chapter. And I thought that that was a really interesting way of framing that. So what, I, I suppose my question is, how does identity politics then help us think through what we might call identity politics now? What parallels do we see kind of, or how, do, how is history repeating itself in your, in your view? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, on the ancient side, uh, and we got to be careful, uh, you know, because 
this gets into a you know well we were we were nerds tonight right we can we can be a little nerdy right my my fellow nerds in the house uh, you know we can be a little nerdy um, but you know this gets into a like a, a debate in late antique early Christian studies around like this question of like well was this issue about nationalism and that was actually kind of the dominant view or way of interpreting this whole schism was that oh these you know everybody was just kind of interested in their own national agenda and now that's been rejected by most modern scholars and saying no that's anachronistic and people were just imposing their own view and nationalism wasn't really a category. Um, and so, but I feel like a lot of scholars have gone to the other extreme where they're ignoring the clear, like, and I'm, I'm so I'm, instead of avoiding language of nationalism, I'm using the language of yeah, identity, but specifically like eth ethnic identity or ethnic rhetoric is at play. And I think that we can't ignore it. Um, I think what was helpful about that critique was that they were pushing back against the, uh, it was it was the early analysis of it just being nationalism was also rooted in kind of a Eurocentric racist view of early Christians in Egypt and Syria being barbaric. I mean, I'm using words that were used by European and North American scholars in the late 19th and early 20th century that they're simplistic or peasant or so they didn't they didn't have theological you know categories to be astute enough to actually put forth an argument they were just passionate about their nation and being nationalistic and and modern scholars said no they were convicted theologically that saying Jesus has two natures is like well they would say turning the Trinity into into a quaternity and that that's that's heresy so and so what I'm trying to say well it's both like it's not either or they were theologically you know motivated and felt that that the tome of Leo was like an like a deviation from the scripture, but at the same time, there was a degree to which, especially in Egypt and Syria and other places, that over time, with more of this kind of Roman imperial imposition of Chalcedonian doctrine, that there was this sense of like, yeah, like we're Egyptian, and like that one nature theology became almost synonymous with Egyptian identity or Ethiopian identity or Syrian identity, um, and that you know, and again, over over an issue that I would say, and even a lot of you know people nowadays have said is not actually you know heresy on either side it was different language different words different concepts of you know communicating the same thing um, but but we see that even now right we see even you know Christians that are dividing and um, you know people are people are dividing theologically or um, you know ecumenically over something as what I would say is clear and biblical and simple as saying black lives matter but even just being a, it's almost like, you know, you, are you going to be a Christian that can say that or a Christian that doesn't say that? Um, and, you know, I think that's, you know, one, one modern example of how we're seeing identity politics, you know, still play out even today over things that don't actually touch the core of our faith. And I'm using language from John Paul II and the Syrian Orthodox patriarch when they made, you know, modern statements of conciliation that you have these issues that don't actually touch the core of the faith, but yet they become attached to various levels of identity that, that cause these very real divisions. So Vince, what do we know about the um, church in Africa in the earliest period that we can know about? Um, I, I'd just love to hear you talk about um, the the spread of Christianity in Africa in the early church, and also how you went about getting sources to learn about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you're talking about Africa, um, you know, and, and in the book, in that chapter, I, I look at kind of four major regions. Like you got, you know, what's called like Roman North Africa, like modern Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, um, and you know, and then you have Egypt, which is also part of the Roman Empire, but where Greek was the imperial language, and then you have uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, you had Nubia and Ethiopia. 
and you know um, you know from the from the first century I mean already in scripture we see Egyptians and Libyans mentioned um, and there's already a, you know clear evidence for Christianity being really present in, uh, along the Mediterranean coast um, you know at the very beginning and then Ethiopia actually became a Christian nation in the 300s in the fourth century through a missionary from Tyre who actually evangelized the king and, and they embraced Christianity and in a similar kind of way actually going back to the Chalcedonian thing and we go into it in the in the chapter um, in the sixth century Nubia uh, actually the various Nubian kingdoms uh, you know Nobadia, Makuria, Elodia became Christian nations as well uh, actually through rival missionary work between Chalcedonian and, and Miaphysite missionaries coming from Constantinople and Egypt so so now the, so the, the areas of the Nile Valley uh, in Africa, Egypt, Nubia, you know, Ethiopia, the continent we now call Africa, um, they, they were predominantly Christian, um, you know, by the, all of them by the 6th century and, and going forward. Um, and they were specifically predominantly Miaphysite Christians, so like one nature. So against the Chalcedonian view of Jesus being one person and two natures, their, their view following, you know, really Egypt and Nubia and Ethiopia were connected to Egypt, uh, believed in one person and one nature. Uh, now in North Africa, Roman North Africa, where Latin was the dominant language, uh, actually, you know, uh, most of the, there was actually, after the Chalcedonian Schism, there was a whole lot of changing over because actually some, uh, an Aryan kingdom came in and conquered them. Uh, and then, you know, uh, later on, uh, the, you know, shortly after that, the Islamic conquest happened. And so there's not a whole lot of evidence uh, of Christian, you know, uh, theologians coming out of North Africa in the fifth and sixth century. And then Christianity ended up uh, dying out pretty much almost, you know, at least as far as the evidence shows, pretty much immediately after the Islamic conquest. But in the Nile Valley, it continued to spread. Um, and it even, I mean, we might get to this later, but it even continued to spread even out from there into other parts of Africa, which is a really exciting, interesting new area of study that I'm kind of getting into now. Yeah, and, and how how was it finding sources for doing this historical work? Was Was it difficult to access, or did you suddenly find a whole, you know, yeah. section of the library already dedicated to this. I mean, yes and no, actually. Like, it, it, it is difficult to find. Um, and I would say that's another way that white supremacy and Eurocentricity really still plays itself out in just the availability of sources, right? I mean, getting sources that were originally, you know, just in Christian theology that were originally written in Coptic, Ethiopic, Syriac, Garshuni, you know, uh, you know, Armenian, whatever, is extremely hard. And you learned some of these languages, too, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. And so in that way, for me, it was easy, you know, well, easy because, like, you know, I, I went to a school that specialized in that, you know, you know, um, and there is actually a section of the library where you can go to the CSCO volume and say, okay, that's all right there. But I mean, like, you know, a lot of it's translated into Latin or German or French or Italian. And so there's a lot of texts in these languages that haven't been, haven't even been translated, you know, on the flip side, church, you know, early church theologians that wrote in like Greek or Latin are extremely easy to find and you can get them, you know, anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, it was, a uh, you know, you know, difficult to do, but I was blessed to be in a coming out of a context where I was able to do that. Can I ask a follow up question on uh, Miaphysite Christology? There, it seems to me it'd be, it'd be helpful. First of all, that's a that was a new word for me. Uh, although I'm a like Greek's the only ancient language that I know, so I feel kind of silly that that was like my new word that it you know because it's a Greek word. Um, but I wonder, can you can you tell us more about why that's that's such an important hallmark of of uh, African Christianity, and and it seemed to me that there was a translation issue with Chalcedonian Christianity and Miaphysite Christianity that makes 
Chalcedonian Christianity into a heresy. Um, and I just wonder if you could say a bit more about that, because I, it was it was really interesting and helpful um, to think through not only, you know, the argument that you laid out, but also uh, rethinking some Chalcedonian Christianity. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, you know, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I would say, um, well, yeah, the, the, you know, the word miaphysite, you know, means one nature. And the, the word that in, in many like Western church history textbooks, the word that gets used in reference to these communities um, is monophysite, which also means one nature. Um, but, you know, to a lot of people, especially in these heritage communities, you know, the Coptic Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, that word is, you know, sometimes considered pejorative. And it's never a word that was used to describe that community, but is used by its distractors, just like they use the word diphysite, right, to refer to Chalcedonians, which was, you know, that was also a kind of a pejorative term. But, but they both mean one nature, but uh, I think in the way a lot of people in the heritage communities use it, it's, it's in the sense of being one united nature. Uh, so there's the understanding that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human, but after the incarnation, his humanity and divinity become one nature as well as one person. And so because the, the common Western critique, and you can even read prominent church history textbooks in the West that will just not give these communities any kind of serious treatment in their history, or if they do, they just say, they kind of just blindly regurgitate the same polemic that the Constantinopolitans were doing in the fifth century, say, well, they're heretics because they didn't really believe Jesus was fully divine or fully God, uh, I mean, or fully human. They believe he's fully divine, but not fully human. And that's not true at all. You know, from the very beginning of the rejection of Chalcedon, the, you know, some of the people we cover in the book, Timothy, Elyris, Severus of Antioch, Benjamin of Alexandria, whose names don't usually come up in these books uh, that, you know, they're being, that are being called heretics. Um, they are very clear that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And yeah, that did become a really um, defining feature that separated the uh, kind of the churches of, of Africa and the Near East from the churches of what would later become known as Europe. Uh, in fact, even the Ethiopian church today is called the Tewahedo church. And Tewahedo means one in the sense of like, you, you know, one nature. And so that's even in the name. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that became a big issue. Now, you know, as to whether it was like a translation issue, that's, I think that's a really complicated question because most of the detractors or most of the opponents of Chalcedon also were Greek speakers. Uh, you know, like uh, Timothy Elyris, Dioscorus of Alexandria, Severus of Antioch, they lived in Antioch and Alexandria where Greek was the dominant language and they would have been writing in Greek as well. Um, even though a lot of their writings survive in Syriac and Coptic. But I think that speaks to it why I say it's complicated because at the same time, they may have been in, uh, in capital cities where Greek was the main language, but they were still doing theology for a population that you know, many of whom didn't speak Greek, but they only spoke Coptic or Syriac. And so they had to find ways to translate it. And over time, as those concepts of like one hypostasis and nature come into those languages and get translated, as later theologians aren't writing in Greek anymore, but they're doing it in Coptic and Ge'ez and Syriac, those, those you know, those nuances between hypothesis and physics as it's used, you know, in the kind of Hellenistic world doesn't, yeah, it doesn't translate into other languages. And you have people like much later, like, you know, one of the first theologians in Ethiopia to really comment and reject Chalcedon. Uh, and also the first author, uh, first identified author in Ethiopia was Georgius of Sagla. And he uses the terms Helawe and Ge'ez to talk about Jesus's nature. And that's also the word he uses for person. So he's using the same word, uh, which in, in Greek is two separate words referring to two different realities in that mindset. So Vince, I'm wondering if you could talk about, as, as you looked at African Christianity and the spread of Christianity in the Middle East and into Asia, what's something that really surprised you along the way as you were doing that research? 
the thing that really drew me in was this whole was this whole controversy. Um, I wasn't really aware of like how serious it was because I, I, you know, kind of coming up in church history, I hear about the first major schism was like in the 11th century between like Eastern and Western Europe. And then there was the European Reformation. Uh, I say European Reformation because there was an African one as well before the European Reformation. But we, we talk about that in the book. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, this this one, you know, being like as extreme as it was and again, falling so largely on these geographical and cultural lines. Uh, but even just to know that there were Christians in Africa and in Asia that that said no <laughs> to kind of this dominant Western hegemonic, you know, Christianity and still to this day continue to kind of hold to their guns and say, no, we we actually are Orthodox. And um, and uh, and so to, just to see that, uh, because, again, my, you know, it was I think it was going back to my story, like in grad school, like just even learning that there were Christians in Africa as early as there were even earlier than many parts of Europe, that was already very transformative because I don't, I don't hear about that. Or I didn't hear about that. But then on top of that, the extra, for me, the icing on the cake was that not only that, but they, they were a different kind of Christian uh, and they weren't cool with the Christians in Europe and they actually had some beef. And, you know, cause my first thought would have been, oh, they probably like got it from Europe. And then they just kind of was following, you know, along that style. Like, no, actually they rejected it. Um, yeah, that's, that was, that was, uh, that was, I think what kind of, you know, really, you know, locked me into that for, and for my, that's what I ended up doing my dissertation on and, and now my current book project and trying to get that out and really like basically the whole part about Egypt's response to Chalcedon is just like the whole topic of this, this current uh, project. Yeah. I was surprised at the way that that theme just kept coming up in, not only in Africa, but also in the Middle East and into Asia and, and variations on it as well. Cause you talk about like even a third option between like two natures and one nature as well. Um, I was, I was going to read the, a quote that you just touched on. Um, I, I actually want to read two quotes. So the first one, centuries before Western European, the Western European Renaissance, um, the formation of the Kingdom of Georgia in the 11th century ushered in 300 years of philosophical, scientific, artistic, and theological renewal. And then another quote, over a century before Martin Luther nailed up his 95 theses in Wittenberg, Ethiopia was experiencing its own reformation that addressed many of the same concerns that were raised in Europe. So uh, th those, are, those are pretty big deals, and we don't hear about them in our textbooks. Why not? I mean, I, I think it just comes down to white supremacy. You know, I think it just comes down to Eurocentricity and, you know, needing to frame things in through a Western or whatever category you want to use, Western, white, European framework. And um, and again, I mean, there's all these contributions of early Christians. And I don't I, I just think it's interesting that you know, again, these these communities that were seen as heretical were places that were primarily full of black and brown people, uh, and they were ostracized and oppressed, and um, and then kind of just left for Islam to come in and take over, and you know, really kind of you know limit the missional impact of these communities. Um, yeah. Should we do a speed round? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do a speed round. Onscript listeners, the the way speed rounds work, and Vince, the way speed rounds work, we ask you a question. You answer the first thing that comes into your head, and you don't have to defend it or talk about it. Just, like, short, quick answers. <laughs> Sound good? Some of the questions are serious. Some of them are less serious. And I'm not going to tell you which ones we're going to do. No. <laughs> All right. So the first question is, what food tastes like home? Oh, um, 
Emo's Pizza. Got to be from St. Louis to know about that one. All right. What, what's the most significant book in church history in the last 50 years? Oh, uh, well, actually, I got to give a shout out. Uh, this one just came out like a couple months ago. Um, but given, given all the stuff I was just talking about, uh, my man uh, Jamie Walters just released a, a reader of Eastern Christianity and for, you know, for the first time put together a lot of these early Christian texts in Georgian, Armenian, Coptic, Ge'ez, and put them all in English translation with multiple authors. And now people can read this and, you know, put it in classrooms. And so I, I think that's being the language nerd and all that, like I, I'm going to, you know, it's not really a theolo theology book, but I got to give it up for that. What's a trend in society that scares you? Skinny jeans. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that one's like going the way of all flesh. Is it? Oh, thank God. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. What's a place you'd like to travel to? Oh, man. Um, I really want to go to, um, I was going to go and then COVID. Um, but, uh, but I was, you know, out of all these ancient African places, those are always on my bucket list is seeing these places where Christianity was in Africa and Asia. And so in, in Africa, the only place I haven't been to yet, um, you know, where there was ancient Christian areas is Eritrea. And so I was going to go to see Adulis and uh, see a lot of the ancient sites there, but I got to wait. Hopefully soon. Hopefully, Hopefully soon. Will you sing a song for us right now? Oh. Uh, Matt will harmonize. <laughs> Old MacDonald had a farm. Yeah, yeah. My kids were singing this yesterday, like all day, so it's like in my head. You said the first thing. No, no. Oh, that's excellent. Okay, knock, knock. Who's there? Hike. Hike who? An old silent pond. A frog jumps into the pond. Splash. Silence again. What's something you're reading now or recently that we need to know about? Well, I, I mentioned this briefly, but my, you know, as I have been sharing this, uh, especially in the black church and black community, you know, a lot of people have said, okay, well, that, you know, is there any evidence for like West Africa? And so I've been getting into this whole area of study now where I'm trying to explore the degree to which African Christianity from the North and from the East, you know, might have spread, you know, in other places of the continent. And so I'm reading a lot of, you know, uh, early uh, his Muslim historians and some of the earliest travelers in Africa, like, you know, Al-Adrisi or uh, Ibn Halkal and um, Al-Makrizi and reading some of their accounts. Of course. And I, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who else would you read? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're learning Arabic now too, aren't you? I, yeah, I, 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 you know, just sort of learned it and trying to make my way through. And actually, tomorrow, uh, I, I, I learned, I finished learning Arabic uh, a few months ago. Okay, so actually, you're done. To, well, no, tomorrow. Uh, this is actually like uh, I'm really excited because, uh, again, in a nerdy way, because I'm actually starting my first class and learning Old Nubian tomorrow because uh, I've never learned that. So where do you take Old Nubian? I, 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 I have a, a, a friend who's going to just tutor tutor me in it over Zoom. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. What's, what's one thing you wish all your students knew? Oh, uh, wish they knew about all this early history and, you know, Africa and Asia. Is that one thing? 
<laughs> Seems mm. like there's a lot of things. <laughs> I know, right? I gotta pick one of them. No. Oh, okay. Uh, no. So, do you have a favorite novel? Oh, I don't. Yeah, novels or movie. Oh yeah, movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I. My favorite. I can't decide, uh, but I'm an '80s child, so I ultimately it's between Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Like those are my. Yeah. What's one thing you wish all pastors knew? Ooh, all pastors knew. Um, uh, it, it is okay to take a break and relax. That's like, a good word. That's a good word at the end of a conference, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, um, let's go back to the interview. One, or did you have another speed round question? Nope. Okay. Yeah. What, one of the things that, that I found really interesting in your book is the... Um, your research on Christian-Muslim dialogue. And, and so I'm wondering if you could just talk about some of the ways that uh, Christians in the Middle East and other places were interacting with um, Muslims and the degree to which you think that could provide a model for us today. Yeah, that's, that's another great question. You know, there, I mean, I think that um, there, was a, there was a shift for sure. Um, I mean, in the earliest years of is- Islam, you know, in northeastern Africa and the Near East, you know, for the most part, uh, especially compared to the last thousand years, it was pretty peaceful between Christians and Muslims in that part of the world. I mean, especially in the, you know, also because when Muslims first took over in Egypt or in, um, you know, uh, in Syria or other places, uh, they were still the numerical minority. And so there were Christians at every level of government and people who, you know, were, had high positions. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you were talking about like, yeah, the Georgian golden era, you know, in the 12th and 13th century, and then, um, you know, Ethiopian reformation, another, you know, another thing, again, just to decenter or de-Europeanize the way that we talk about history, uh, is when we like say things like the dark ages, right? When we say the dark ages, we're usually talking about the European dark ages, but the very European dark ages are actually the Islamic golden age, uh, especially during the Abbasid Caliphate in the ninth and 10th century. And that's, you know, probably one of the best examples of, you know, just really collaborative and creative, uh, vibrant Christian, Muslim and Jewish and Zoroastrian and Manichaean, uh, especially in Baghdad, like there's, you know, just so many religious communities, but, you know, Christian and Muslim being two of the biggest and, um, you know, having dialogue and having um, debates, public debates about the Trinity or about Jesus and, um, and, you know, just openly being able to do that. And then in Egypt, in the case of Egypt, interestingly, um, the, uh, when the Muslims first conquered in 642, a lot of the Christians who were predominantly Miaphysite uh, were actually, some of them were even happy that the Muslims conquered because they had such a bad relationship with Roman Chalcedonian church. So you have Christians actually getting along better with Muslims than they did with other Christians uh, that, that they didn't agree with. Um, but of course that ended up changing, especially following the 10th century and I, uh, or the 11th century. And I would say a lot of that had to do with the launch of the Crusades and the European launch of the Crusades, you know, kind of engendered this sense, um, you know, among like the, the Islamic forces uh, to the east that their Christian subjects were going to become traitors and fight with the, the Franks. Um, yeah, and, and, and just following up on the, on the theological side of that, you talked about some of the points of continuity that were expressed with regard to Islam and Christian articulations of the Trinity, and, and I, I thought maybe that would be interesting to talk about. 
Yeah, definitely. Like even in some of those um, early Christian Islamic, you know, dialogues, like the famous one was the Pope of the Church of the East, uh, which is often, you know, called Nestorian. But again, it's more pejorative name. But yeah, the Church of the East, Timothy of Baghdad in the ninth century had this famous dialogue with uh, with the Caliph of the Abbasid Caliph, Al-Mahdi. And, you know, they were talking about the typical Christian Muslim issues. And uh, but, you know, he was you know, trying, I think he was trying really hard to communicate the Christian message, but in a way that, you know, um, and building dialogue in a way that Muslims could hear. And then even before his time, um, one of the, the first Christian texts ever to be written in Arabic that had an unnamed author is actually the whole thing is an apologetic treatise in defense of the Trinity, but, you know, written in Arabic and uh, clearly written, you know, with a Muslim audience in mind, trying to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, but, you know, avoiding problematic terms like father and son, um, but instead focusing on wording like God, his word and his spirit, uh, and, you know, using concepts and wording that were in the Quran and, and operative in Islam, um, but that still communicate the message of, of the Trinity uh, in a way that, you know, and that wasn't the, that wasn't completely the case because you had people like the first uh, identified author, like Theodore Abukura, was the first Christian to write in Arabic, whose name we know, and he was a lot less cordial <laughs> uh, to Muslims. And so, you know, you had like a mix, you know, a variety of of the ways that that they engage. And then in Ethiopia, of course, there was a good relationship because the you know the some of the early followers of Muhammad took refuge in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Ethiopians gave them shelter, and so even when they came over and conquered Egypt and tried to conquer Nubia and failed, and then created a peace treaty with Nubia actually, uh, but th there wasn't even an initial uh, conquest in Ethiopia because there was those you know, kind of friendly relations. Mm -hmm. Can I follow up on a question about culture and translation, et cetera? Because you, you have this interesting line in the conclusion and I'm going to quote it. You say, the realization that God has not bound his plan of restoration to the Jewish culture is why Lemon Sana uh, has described the language of Christianity as translation. For Sana, the function of translating the Christian message to local language and cultural system, quote, gives the gospel a multifaceted pluralist character while preventing the imposition of a uniform monolithic template. Now, I, I think that's a really interesting phrase from a missiological point of view. As a New Testament scholar who spends a lot of time thinking about the Judaism of those texts, um, I have some like slight reservations about how, like, to what extent can we divorce Judaism from the New Testament, from the Old Testament? I think that's a great question. I mean, I think it depends on what we're talking about. Um, uh, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't, um, I wouldn't use the word myself of like divorce from, from Judaism, uh, you know, and I, I don't think we can or should do that. Um, and also, you know, I mean, I think you, you, you also said the end goal of interpreting these texts. And yeah, yeah if we're going to interpret the Bible, you, yeah, we have to, we have to, you know, stay connected to Judaism uh, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, I was, I was more, I think missiologically, I'm more thinking about like, you know, evangelism and like the, the communication of the gospel message and, um, and, you know, that just the way that, you know, the early church would communicate the message of the gospel um, and might not even use concepts that were more kind of, you know, more Jewish in nature that a Jewish audience would understand better, but communicating it, you know, more in a Hellenistic or in another another context. Yeah, and that and that makes sense to me. I my my, my pushback to that is: is the gospel still the gospel if it's not the story of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, who came to be enthroned as the Messiah of Israel? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, I was just, um, you know, I was like, I was just engaging, uh, you know, at Fuller, we were, I was, you know, Dr. Willie Jennings and I were kind of engaged on this, but I, I do, I mean, I think that if someone heard the gospel message, 
um, and heard that God became a human to save us from sin, but never found out like, you know, exactly what year and what culture that he was, but believed in, in Jesus in and, you know, and was, I think they could be filled with the Holy Spirit and saved, never knowing that, you know, now that's not like a call that we need to, you know, some kind of anti-Semitic or some kind of like supersessionistic need to try to divorce Christianity from its Jewish roots. But, but I think, you know, if I believe as I do that someone could be saved, never really knowing that Jesus was Jewish, then that in a sense, there's a layer to which it actually doesn't matter that to a degree, there's one sense in which it doesn't really matter that Jesus was Jewish. Now there's many senses that it does. Um, but you know, that's, that's how I'd see it. But yeah. yeah, it's an interesting question about like how like in missiological thinking to what degree, and, and you talk about this toward the end of the book, there's the indigenization concept and, um, but then also, like, what is it that is brought over? And, and is any of that cultural that is brought into a different culture that's just intrinsic to the Christian message? So, yeah, it's an interesting and important question. Um, so, so another uh, related question is, I'm, I'm wondering if you could step back as well on that theme and talk about some of the missiological imperatives that you think come out of your study of the spread of Christianity in different parts of the world? I mean, I think, you know, I think we were just kind of hitting on it. Um, you know, again, the fact that, uh, you know, you have Christianity going in these different, not only being present in these different areas in, the, in this different directions, but again, in some ways, like being kind of at a certain level, unrecognizable to like a a Palestinian Jew or somebody else from a different context that where you have Christianity in, in Tang era China talking about, you know, the world honored run, you know, kind of being illuminating the human race through the four cardinal paths and uh, like communicating through Taoist and Buddhist terminology that, you know, again, going in a different direction, um, you know, that it just takes on a new life of its own. I think that that um, I think that in and of itself is like historical evidence to show that again the that the gospel message is not bound to one particular cultural worldview or concept but it, it, it that it incarnates that the gospel message that the living word takes up residence in the concepts uh, of every culture nation tribe and tongue could you talk about the um you, you had some really interesting reflections as well on matthew 28 it's it's use and misuse in missiological thinking. Um, I'm wondering if you could share about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I, I mean, you know, the, the misuse part, I would say, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, you know, usually we hear that translated as, you know, make disciples of all nations. Um, and I mean, this is just a minor point, but I just, again, I don't know if nations is the, the best word. In fact, uh, you know, the original title was a multitude of all nations uh, that, that's used in Genesis 49. But, I, you know, I wanted to use the word peoples as something that's more resonant with, you know, especially, you know, indigenous and, you know, African peoples. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, even the word ethne, um, you know, does that really translate to the idea of nation in the way we think of it? Um, but, I, you know, I was also, you know, trying to, expound on it a little bit more, um, you know, even in thinking about the fullness from an anthropological standpoint, the fullness and kind of the pregnant nature of what the word ethnicity means um, and all that, all that what that is and thinking about it, not just, as, not just in terms of people, but even 
kind of the the cultural categories or the the habitus or the um, yeah the frameworks the mental models that go into making up an ethnic identity that like seeing that in its in the fullness of it you know kind of thinking about in Semitic, you know, poetry or language, how oftentimes there's multiple meanings to a word and we don't necessarily have to pick only one all the time. And so, uh, you know, the kind of the, the core verb being disciple, right? It's like, as you're going, disciple. And so what are we discipling? You know, if we're discipling ethnicity, like all of what ethnicity is, and it's individuals that make up communities, but it, you know, I, I also like to think of it as we're also discipling our ethnicities themselves, uh, our ethnic categories that that all of us, again, I mean, this, I think this ties in well with what we were talking about, that, 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 that all of us are made in God's image, that in the creation mandate, ethnic and racial and cultural identity were things that God intended from the beginning, um, that, and that all of us have our own, we're all made in the image of God, and therefore there's an element of God's image even in our cultural categories and our ancestral traditions, and you know, through sin they've gotten off track, but through now through Jesus they can be made right and they can be brought back into, and the Holy Spirit empowers believers in every nation, tribe, and tongue to disciple their ethnic cultural categories and their very identities themselves, uh, and not not to assimilate to one particular or kind of center around one particular culture, but to actually, you know, with Jesus as the center and everyone identifying with God as they are. Yes, right. yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Vince, what are your hopes for this book? What conversations are you hoping that it'll change and disrupt? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one one way of putting it is, um, you know, I'll, uh, you, you know, I think that whether we're scholars or not, um, just to use a practical example, um, most people, you know, have, you know, even if they're not even a scholar or a Christian or whatever, most people have heard the name like, you know, Thomas Aquinas or um, Augustine or uh, Martin Luther uh, or Jonathan Edwards, right? Um, but then on the flip side, even many scholars haven't heard the names, even heard the names like Narsai or Babai the Great or Zara Yacoub. And, you know, there's, you know, many of these, you know, Asian and African theologians, their names are not even known, even among, even by scholars and even in academic institutions. And so I guess that'd be my hope is that uh, these, you know, these African and Asian names can become just as well known as the European names of church history, but also that it can really help encourage us to uh, not only, again, not only understand that there was people from different places, different languages, different hues that called themselves Christians, but also that from the very beginning, they made the Christian message their own. And so my hope is that it can be an inspiration to us today to continue to make the faith our own. And again, not only defining ourselves against something or kind of in, in like D or post or contra something, but really centering ourselves in our own identity and ancestry and, and discipling it, you know, understanding that God's been at work, um, you know, since day one. Well, Vince, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us tonight, for coming out. Thanks so much, Vince. Thank you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.